Welcome to Healthcare 2030. This program features conversations and interviews with respected healthcare industry experts discussing the latest topics regarding current issues today and the future of healthcare, innovation, and technology. To learn more about Oxio Health, head over to oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io. Now here's your host, Noel Guillama. Hi, welcome to Healthcare 2030. My name is uh, Noel Guillama, and I'd like to introduce my uh, partner and co-host, Carl Larson. Hello, Noel, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you and everybody joining us. Um, we're uh, kicking off a, uh, a new podcast session, and I'm looking forward to it, technology. Uh, did you want to introduce uh, our topic? Absolutely. I think that uh, one of the great opportunities that uh, that that we have in today's world is using tech, better technology or more technology to improve quality of life, improve health. So um, the idea was to really talk about uh, how technology has affected us, but probably, and I hate to start the year off, you know, with with a negative subject, but really is why hasn't technology uh, affected us more? Why? What what is missing? What has been missing? Um, why there is, uh, at least my argument would be, tremendous opportunity. Um, but I can imagine a lot of people have been frustrated by by that question: Why hasn't technology affected us more? I think you're right. I think uh, restating it too, it's the uh, it's the adoption of technology in healthcare. Healthcare has been remarkably slow, and and characteristically slow, in adopting technology. I, you know, thinking back, cell phones when they came out, uh, doctors were still using their uh, their little pagers and uh, and and so on. So it seems, and you and I have talked about this, and we're going to explore this in depth in this in this podcast. Why healthcare is slow to adopt technology. Why do you think that is, Noel? Well, I would argue that, that, that healthcare, and particularly physicians, are really good at adopting technology that makes a material impact on their lives. Now, you know, you and I are matured enough or aged enough, like good wine, to remember the days when almost only doctors had pagers. Uh, and remember the voice pagers? We could be in a movie theater or something, and, and the pager would go off. And we have to put it in context. Until that time with a pager, when a doctor, let, let's talk about a doctor that does deliveries, is in sort of an extreme situation, or a surgeon, um, literally left the hospital, he would tell the staff where he was going to be because in case of emergency, they had to call him. They had to call the, the, his home. They had to call the theater, the, the ballet, the, the restaurants even. And I remember vaguely those days, um, and it was quite complicated. Um, so when the pager comes along, then the doctor is freed to basically carry on his life normally, um, and he gets a pager from a call uh, center that basically says, Dr. XYZ, please call your service. That's, that's what we would hear. Um, and sometimes it was low, sometimes it was loud, and then the doctor would know, pick up a bunch of quarters, and, and you know, find a phone booth um, or, or ask to use a phone, and he would call. 
doctors were incredibly quick to adopting, you know, pagers. So my argument is the reason is it materially changed their lives. The second example that I would give would be the fax machine. Recently, the director of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid literally said in in a conference in the last couple of years that one of her biggest frustration is that something like 75 or 80% of, of health care um, information was still flowing through fax machine, and she wanted to make fax machines obsolete. And this is after we have spent um, literally $100 billion, probably in EHR um, um, implementation over the last you know, five or six years, for sure. Part of it government money, part of it private industry money. But going back to the facts, before that, the doctors had to basically mail information, use couriers to transfer records uh, one place to another. The fax machine allowed them to both send information quickly and get information quickly. So the doctors very quickly paid the big money. And at the time, a fax machine was very big money to get a fax machine. And to this day, most doctors' offices have a fax machine. And to this day, many, not most, still use the, the, the fax machine to uh, you know get and receive information, whether it's lab results or, or, or radiology results. Um, and so my argument is that doctors are very good at adapting it. The third example that I would give you would be the cell phone. I remember that when Motorola came out with their brick, uh, which is a mobile phone, or actually even the car phones, uh, it was mostly doctors, sometimes attorneys, but mostly doctors that had the car phone and it had the bricks. The reason goes back to that same example of the pager is it allowed them to change their lives. Um, by going further, by communicating information. Um, I, I don't know when the first telemedicine call was made, um, but it was probably around that time that the telephone was sort of invented and, and, and the, the, the Motorola brick. So my argument is that doctors are incredibly quick at adopting technology. Um, as soon as the government allowed for electronic transmission of medical bills, Doctors adopted it by paying companies to do it because it would save them days of printing out what's called the HICVA 1500 form, signing it, and then mailing it in batches of, you know, 100 to insurance company or to Medicare or Medicaid, and then eventually get paid back with then batches of hundreds of pages of explanation of benefits as to why they were paid and why they were paid. So doctors are really good about using technology, and then that, that connects to the hospitals. What doctors are really bad at, and this is what we have lived through for the last really seven, eight, nine years, is when government mandates the use of technology. Um, for example, you know, electronic medical records, something we know a material amount about. Um, government said all doctors are gonna have medical records, all doctors are gonna get penalized if they don't have it, and if they get it, they're gonna get paid. So literally a, 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 a ton uh, of companies, certainly in the hundreds, went out there and says, we're going to build a great medical record a platform. And what happens is the government created standards. The standards were not really great. Uh, and what the government has done over and over has now, last count six or seven times, has changed those standards and continue to migrate those standards. And what happens is that incredibly frustrates the doctor because doctors are creatures of habit. Okay. When a doctor is a surgeon and he's going to remove a gallbladder, 
99% of the time, I, 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 and I've seen some, is their first stroke, their first cut is exactly the same. And what they do and how they do it is exactly the same. When the nurse staff um, and the assistant staff creates their tray, it's always the same exact tray. In the left-hand side is the scalpel, and the right-hand side is whatever, and all 14 instruments, if they have them, are exactly the same order. So what happens is when you got in technology and it's everything, you know, that you can have and it has the flexibility of literally hundreds of platforms and then compound that with, you know, half a dozen up mandated updates um, and, and everybody's trying to make the technology do more and more adaptive. What happens is you have too many variables. It'd be like, again, an example would be a surgeon going into a surgical suite and the tray is always random. He has no idea, okay, whether that scalpel, whatever number scalpel he's using, is in the first position, the third position, the eighth position, the 10th position. And people will say, well, what does it really matter? He can look at it. Doctors don't even look at it. They just go in there, or they ask for it, or they go in there and they know where it is. And that's, that's something about habit. So doctors are very much used to habit. The same way they how they treat a patient. When a patient comes in for a certain procedure, they follow a process or a problem because that's how they're taught. So my, my point about technology is the technology in particularly, certainly since a personal computer, has been moving so fast that the industry hasn't really had time to adapt. I mean, think about it. The doctor today that is 65 years old uh, and by the way, the average physician in the state of Florida, which we're, we are in, is uh, 57 years old. So the average 65-year-old um, predates the Internet, predates um, uh, smartphones, predates um, cell phones, predates fax and pager. So think about all that transition through his, and yet healthcare is, you know, still pays people get sick, but you know, and and how they're treated is relatively the same, maybe better drugs, but that human's body, you know, physique um, hasn't changed, but everything else around them has changed. So my point is that technology hasn't had a bigger impact because technology by its own nature moves so fast that it hasn't allowed the industry, the, the providers to catch up. And you could say, well, the brand new doctors that are coming out of medical school in their late 20s, they're, they're, they've got it. Um, and the answer is they may have it for a few weeks, a few months, a couple of years, but technology continues to expand. Uh, and particularly now, uh, one of the things that they're gonna catch a little differently is how we're using IoT, how we're using telemedicine, how we're using all the other ancillary things that are gonna feed more data to the provider. And, and, and what I think is gonna happen is I think we're gonna have much more use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, to help process that information. So the information is partially filtered by the time it gets to the doctor. So we've got, uh, we've got a number of factors then uh, that I've, I've heard you touch on. Um, and that seems to boil down to me to uh, a couple of things, right? It boils down to the ability of the of the physician to uh, to utilize the technology effectively. Their their issue then becomes how do I how do I maximize the use of this technology 
So it benefits my practice, it benefits my patients. Um, and because of the, the rapid change of technology, the doubling time as we refer to it of technology, they are in a continuous state of change, a continuous state of flux. To go back to your example, that surgical tray is constantly being shifted the position of the, of the instruments. And so they're, they're constantly trying to catch up even just to stay with the technology. Um, that, I think, is a good description. It's a good lead-in to drill down a little bit on the electronic health records. I recently changed physicians myself, and um, I had to get my records from my previous physician and literally hand-carry copies of them over to the, the new physician. Yet the physician that I did have had an electronic health record program. So the issue there was clearly one of interoperability. Uh, there was just no ability to exchange that data. That certainly is one problem. What, what are some of the other issues then facing that particular segment of technology in, in the healthcare industry? Well, we, we can pick up on interoperability, which is a very big word. The government has been almost laser focused on interoperability because everybody thinks it's going to be sort of a magic solution. And I got to tell you, it, it isn't, it won't be. And, and the reason are multifolds. Every EHR in the marketplace today that's certified, which is overwhelmingly the majority, has a provision um, to transfer medical records um, from one system to another. Um, it's not a smart transfer, what I would call a smart transfer, meaning information doesn't flow automatically from the, the, the locations they need to be, so, you know, name and name and social security number. Um, or you can use a, a third party uh, data exchange that then allows to do that. Sort of like think about it as almost a translation platform. Um, the problem is it's cumbersome. It's, it, 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 it is slower um, than you would want it to be, even though it, it, it can't be done fast. And, and there is a, there's a certain amount of, of legal risk to the doctors. Let me give you an example. If a doctor, if you transferred now, as you have said, from one doctor to the other, and, you, and the doctor that you moved from, let's call him Dr. A, had 10 years, since the beginning of the EHR industry, had 10 years of medical records on you that included you know, issues that may no longer be relevant, and that was transferred in a huge data dump perfectly to the new doctor, what is a doctor going to do with hundreds of pages of your medical record? Um, the legal profession may require him to read all of them <laughs> and say, you should have known if something happened that there was a slip and fall, there was this issue. What? Who knows? I'm not trying to you know, talk about you personally, but who knows what's in a hundred encounters that that first doctor had so that the new doctor has it. And also, part of the reason for for the process of becoming a new patient is the doctor gets to interview the patient. Um, and so that is part of, for the doctor's information, for his memory, doctors have very good memory, they're taught that in, in medical school, so they can get it, so they can have it. If he's got a data dump and he's sitting in front of a computer and he's, you know, page, page down, page down, page down, first of all, I have to tell you, he doesn't get paid for it, and that's a problem. The second thing is, it's too much data. I mean, you may have a cold, you may have the sniffles, and that's where you're gonna go see him, 
But because he has that data information, he should review all the data to find out, you know, if you forgot that there's an allergy, but there was an allergy. So part of the problem with interoperability is the industry doesn't really want it, but the government's mandating it. Let me give you an example. Uh, six years ago, the government mandated that every EHR is certified that it had to have a patient portal, okay? The famous patient portal. As of today, less than 10% of patients have access their medical record on the portal in the country, period, period. So it's a great feature. I got to tell you, I've never accessed mine, whether it was at the hospital um, when I had some outpatient or, or in the hospital. I don't really need it. Um, and, and I haven't done it. And I'm a sort of, I, I did, I've done it for my mother, for example, because I was curious um, and it was more serious. But so that, that the patient has to be part of it. When the day the patient requires a doctor to say, if you don't transfer my record, I'm not going to go to you, then it will happen. We, this country is very consumer centric. So it will happen. So that, that's one of the biggest problems that we have um, in the EHR. And the, cha- the other challenge with EHRs, for example, is that because of the way they were required to be built, is there's a lot of extra data. A doctor can literally get and cutting and pasting medical, inf- medical information and, and, and create a 10-page uh, report to basically describe that, you know, again, you've got a cold, runny nose, uh, you, your temperature's normal, your blood pressure's normal. You can either do that, and that's why when they write, and you look at doctors, the way they write sort of almost like they're cryptic, the doctor can write in three lines using his own sort of proprietary abbreviations. What's wrong with you? Call it scribble. Exactly. That scribble in three lines, he can tell you everything. Or he can spend 10 pages in an EHR. The other problem they have is most doctors did not learn, certainly in school, how to type. Certainly not the 57-year-old, probably. They learn longhand information, with sharing information, writing. When you go to a hospital for years and years, now it's a little different. The doctors would look at the physical chart and they make changes. Now you have incredibly expensive systems. The three big players in the marketplace are Epic, Cerner, and Meditech, and incredibly sophisticated. The system can cost a hundred million dollars, and doctors are you know are 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 literally you know like headlight deer kind of look, where there's just so much information. So now one of the things that's happening is many systems. And many practices are creating scribes to help the doctor transfer that information. Patients aren't that cool with it yet, but that's what happens is that technology has moved too fast uh, for the doctor's ability to adapt, and and it's just a human nature. So we've we've got electronic health records uh, as as a technology bringing a great deal of data, and you use the term data dump um, to a to a doctor about his patient. Um, and and let's let's move on to another corollary subject: the Internet of Things. Uh, we have all of these wearable devices, smartwatches. We have monitors of all kinds that are being used. People are 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 using. You and I both have smartwatches that we use, um, Fitbit, and so on. Uh, whether for our healthcare and and or just for fitness purposes. Um, so what? What my question then for you is, if we've already deluged the physician with a great deal of, of 
health data, medical data for an individual. What's going to happen as the Internet of Things begins to access this tremendous amount of data through wearable devices that the industry is saying by 2021 worldwide we'll see a billion, literally, in use. What is that going to do for the, for the data to the physician? It seems like it's going to multiply it. Well, that's, that's part of the challenge. The, the tremendous opportunity in using the Internet of Things, tremendous opportunity when you tie the Internet of Things to 5G, Incredible opportunities are tied are, are are available when you tied the Internet of Things, 5G, and EHR. And, and if you want to go one further, if you tie that then eventually to the blockchain, then you know it's exponential value. So what you're going to need are, is you're going to need um, intermediaries. Just like I talked about the EDI is transferring information, you're going to need people, institutional organizations that grab that data, let's talk about IOTs. You know, a home could have, as far as health and wellness related, a dozen products and services. You're gonna need intermediaries to get in there and grab the data, aggregate the data, process the data, and tell the, the doctor or the caregiver or the family when something is out of whack. That's it. It's like, think about your the, 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 the cars, the way your cars are run today, computer operated. Everything, there's nothing lit, okay? It's not like a plane that you've written where the light is green or yellow or red. No, there's nothing lit. If there's nothing lit, everything's fine. <laughs> if anything lights up, any color, you got a problem. And that's what's going to end up. So you're going to end up, especially with the use of machine learning and AI, you're going to be able to take the Fitbit by itself gives you a data set. The weight scale gives you a data set. The blood glucose monitor can give you a data set. Um, your, uh, you know, oximeter can give you a data set. The blood pressure, okay, whether you're using the, the two leads, that, you know, for $100 or you're using some more, more sophisticated gives you a data set. All of that data needs to be connected, gathered, processed. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity um, to, to have those type of entities that are processing it and feeding the information to the medical record, but it's nominal, it's normal, it's normal, it's normal, it's normal. There's nothing to act if it's not normal. Then if it's not normal, then you have a couple of fail-safes, okay? It's not like, you know, let's think about your, your home alarm system. If your home alarm system is triggered, the first thing your central station does is call your home or call your cell to see if it was an accident, <laughs> if it was a power surge, um, if it was a child that you know left the door open, whatever. And if they don't get an answer, then they send the police. But they, they automatically, in the old days, they would just send the police. And I'm like, well, well there's got to be an intermediary. So you're going to end up very soon, right now, in that, we're in that, in that stage where these, what I want to call central stations are going to be created that are going to grab all of that data and process it and tell you what's wrong. So we are, I think, in an incredibly exciting time because we've now taken the leap, uh, especially with machine learning and AI and, and the, the, the uh, you know, cloud base and everything else, that you, could, that you can now uh, process that information without it interacting directly with the doctor because the doctor doesn't want to see it. If you show up at the doctor's office and say, here's how many steps I took last week, Here's what my, my blood pressure was, you know, in general. Here's what my um, um, my sleep pattern was. Unless there's something really way out of whack, and he's still going to just basically take notes of what you said, 
okay? I don't see a doctor, uh, and I talk to him literally every day, taking a picture of your your Fitbit report or your uh, iPhone report and putting it in the chart. They'll just say the patient said this, and the patient said that, and they'll aggregate it. So, but but I do think, especially as we get to more in a managed care type of world, in a in a in a pay for performance world, in an outcomes based healthcare, which is very near future. Certainly, it's already in place many places. Um, I was involved with it in the early '90s and mid '90s, early 2000. But now there's getting a lot of momentum because what we've talked about before is the baby boomers are having an impact. So as you now get a doctor in a position to earn more money by keeping their patients healthy, then now when we're talking about the first example about technology, now the technology is his friend. That technology is going to help his patients healthier, keep them out of the urgent care, keep them out of the emergency room, uh, keep them out of the ICU. When you see that, that, and that's happening right around now, plus or minus a year. So that's uh, actually it seems you're describing a shift of the uh, the technology from being cutting to helpful and uh, being uh, something that almost a, uh, a a doctor or physician would would be a little um, concerned about having too much of to with the assistance of AI and data aggregation and and data analysis be able to utilize that greater data because now it's being it's being sifted uh, for him or her and and they are now not having to analyze lines upon lines but now they're now they're being presented information in a much more usable fashion right let me give you an example I have I saw a friend of mine this weekend uh, work on a carburetor a four-barrel carburetor remember that remember those days I hate to admit okay. it. and and those were really complicated even though they were simple by today's standard they were complicated uh, in adjusting, and they and, and and depending on how you rode and where you rode, you constantly had to adjust the carburetor, the intake, well, the, the mixes, all right? those all yeah. those things had to be done. Today, with fuel injection, your computer is is recalibrating your car's engine many times per second, right? Milliseconds. Okay, yes. so yeah. that, that's the so the difference is if you had to adjust a four barrel carburetor on the fly. Can you imagine the knobs? Even if you create, it, it would be really, really hard, if not impossible. Yet the technology reached to the point where the computer is doing it automatically. By the way, it's change, it's changing your suspension system as it it requires. It's changing um, the, the 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 traction uh, control. It's changing your car has multiple computers today that are that are that are communicating. Um, with the system to give you the optimum car. ABS is one of those things that I think is fascinating. Even the steering and, and climate control. All, all of Everything. that. So, so yeah. what happens with technology eventually gets to the point, which I think is where we are with healthcare, is that it's gotten to a point so sophisticated that it's almost like, you know, sort of it becomes a heads-up display uh, to a fighter pilot or a car. Okay, and that's where we are right now. Um, the only thing that's a barrier... Uh, are two things. One is cost, okay, because the downward pressure on physician reimbursement um, it, it is having an impact. And frankly, the, the second impact is, is consumers. Consumers aren't demanding it yet. Yet. Right. right. Well, I, that's, it's, it's amazing because we've, we've embraced technology so much 
in our in our own lives. You know, uh, I I know very few people who don't travel. If they're traveling away somewhere, they don't use a GPS. And and uh, of course, as you mentioned with the cars, our cars are much more sophisticated. We don't we don't have to think about what we're doing as as much as we as as we used to as we drive down the road. Uh, so. Technology has changed our lives a great deal, and so I'm understanding, based on our conversation uh, today, that technology is changing the doctors, but in a little bit slower but and in a slightly different way. Um, what do you see on the horizon in addition to the aggregation of data? Um, is is blockchain something that is is going to be important? And 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 also, what's happening? Because you did mention cost, cost is a big factor. What's happening with the uh, on the capital side, the capital structure side, with uh, with the uh, with Silicon Valley, for instance, and funding? Well, that's a, those are really good questions. So the blockchain is goes back to that new technology. It isn't. Some people over the last few years have thought that everything is going to be in the blockchain. You're going to buy groceries on the blockchain and using, you know, some kind of cryptocurrency. Well, what is what is the blockchain for, for so people the, that don't the, really know? The, the, the blockchain, as, as we've discussed before a little bit, it's a distributive ledger, which is basically think about in a very simplistic way is an Excel spreadsheet that's public. Um, it's immutable once, once the information is processed. And it's, it's a complicated process to process the data. Um, it becomes It becomes forever. Um, and and you know who could do, who did it, uh, who sees it, who benefits it. Uh, it's a very very sophisticated um, spreadsheet, um, that, and and it is authenticated by other users. Um, and people think it's going to solve everything in, in any in every industry. In, in healthcare, there are a few really cool applications that the blockchain can work. The blockchain works the best when people don't know each other. Because they they it basically authenticates on parties. It's a trust issue, right? I think, right? Yeah. But in healthcare, at least in the United States, and, and for sure most countries, the trust issue is the basis of a relationship in healthcare. The patient to the doctor, the doctor to the hospital, to the pharmaceutical, to the treatment. So in most of those cases, it doesn't apply. But there are a few things that can apply, especially when you're starting to think about using healthcare data. Um, to create research, using healthcare data to do pharmaceutical studies, okay? Uh, to use healthcare data uh, with machine learning um, and, and AI in a large scale. Part of the problem that AI has in healthcare, we can talk about it in another, another podcast, is that you, they, they need a tremendous amount of volume of data. And you need a lot of data from a lot of places. So if, if you only use, for example, hospital-based data, then everybody's going to be in the hospital. Now think about it. You know, when you're in the hospital, you have a problem. You have an acute right. problem. Right. It's not your baseline when you're in your family room. So the blockchain has a possibility of, of some really, really cool things in certain slivers that have to do with data, have to do with research, have to do with with clinical trials, have to do potentially with uh, uh, physician credentialing. Um, I think one of the coolest opportunities is going to be using the blockchain um, for contracts where doctors get paid automatically. They see the patient, the patient confirms. You know, it takes an average doctor about 17 to 18 days today to get get, get a bill paid. There really is no reason. When you and I could transfer money 
from different bank accounts on the fly mm-hmm. with no cost. Um, why does it take a doctor seventeen days, fifteen days, twelve days, sure. ten days, five days? And we got Zelle. We can uh, right. We, we can we so, can move money. So in, I, I in think minutes. those are interesting yeah. points. Yeah. Um, when you talk about Silicon Valley and capital, it's really interesting because th- this actually feeds back to the original subject matter: is why hasn't technology impacted healthcare more when we all expect it? And part of the challenge is the way that venture that, that venture capital. Um, usually, we talk about Silicon Valley, but there's huge groups of venture capitalists all over the United States, certainly the Northeast and Chicago, and, and there's emergence now in other places, is they have a philosophy uh, because they, they get these, this capital from, from usually institutions or wealthy individuals, and they have a, 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 an expiration date, let's use it for a simple term, or what they call a vintage years. Usually they're, they're, they shoot for a seven-year life of this, of, 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 of this pool of money or this fund, and that's why sometimes you'll see fund one through 50, 60, some really, they've done a lot of them. And if you think about a seven-year cycle of a fund, uh, that means that you've got to identify companies as much as you can in year one and two, invest in years two and three, and hopefully start collecting money in, in for five, six, and seven. So you, you have a cycle. And, and sometimes they get extended, sometimes they can roll over from one fund to the other. So what happens is Silicon Valley has a philosophy that's basically called fast fail. That means that you want to invest in 10 companies, effectively. You you expect and you hope, maybe pray, and, and they're pretty good at it, by the way, so you don't have to pray so much, that one or two are going to be really home runs. One or two are going to crash really fast, fast fail. You're done. You're, you wipe them out. And then in the middle, you're going to have some successes and failures, some that get sold, but the big winners are there's one and two, you know, and sometimes only one. It's just a big run, big opportunity. And that's the way companies that honestly, like everything from Facebook to Google, um, Netflix, all these companies had that same, they were in a pool that started. So what happens is because of that deadline, they and in, in healthcare and technology, we talked about the the adoption cycle is a really long cycle, so you can have a really cool technology that is too far ahead of the curve, that is too hard to adopt, adapt, uh, and adopt um, that that doesn't find the buyer, whether it's a doctor, the buyer, the insurance company, the buyer, whoever the buyer is, and so what happens? You have really cool technology companies that fail. And the, the venture capital goes to the next company. And they, they as an enterprise, uh, and, uh, and as a capital structure, are very successful. Um, but they have a horrible record in healthcare because of that demand for sort of quick in, fast acceleration, and get out. It's, uh, that, that characteristic is not amenable, really, I think, is what I'm understanding, to the healthcare industry. It just doesn't work. So. Well, you have disproportionate failures yes. because of that requirement that they grow very fast and you get out. Right. And it's that grow very fast that is the problem in in healthcare. This has been uh, this has been uh, I think a very good uh, exploration of of a topic that I is very near and dear to us and to I know a lot of people in the healthcare industry and that is the the technology and the impact of technology in healthcare. Uh, I think we've got a number of uh, points that we've touched on that we're going to st- explore in further detail in, in future podcasts. So, um, well, thank you very much. I think this has been very good. And uh, it's, uh, 
considered a wrap. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To learn more about our company, please check out our website at oxiohealth.io. That's www.oxiohealth.io.